You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, this morning, our time in the Word is going to be different. We're taking a break from the book of Revelation, and I want to focus in on some tools that I hope will equip us to be better students uh, and gain understanding when we study God's Word. I was saved back in 1987 in September, so I celebrate, I think, 36 years if I'm doing the math correctly on that. And after my profession of faith, I invited uh, others who knew me as well as my own reflection to see, was that profession of faith valid? Was it genuine? And, and one of the common denominators that people shared with me and that I could see in my own life was that something changed immediately after confessing Christ, and that was a love for this book. This book became my passion. It became my authority. And even though I'd had great traditions in my life and, and great experiences and great mentors, so, so smart that they've forgotten more than I'll ever know, I, I had those great authorities in my life, but, but this became my ultimate authority. And my convictions became rooted in this book. And, and you could move my convictions, but you, you would have to explain why they should move from this book. And that, that continues now over three decades since then. But what I learned very quickly is what you all likely experienced on your drive into Ascend this morning. That is that even though we have this book, there are a lot of different conclusions and opinions as to what it means. You, you probably drove by uh, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Seventh-day Adventist churches, and all of those represent the fact that we come to this book as human beings and we draw different conclusions, sometimes so significant that it actually causes us to divide as Christians into denominations and other traditions. And so it begs the question, how do we come to this ancient text, study it for ourselves, and, and land on an understanding that we can have a high degree of confidence reflects what the Holy Spirit intended it to communicate? And that's what we're going to be studying this morning, this concept of biblical theology. Not a theology that is rooted in the Bible, but a, an actual methodology of studying Scripture, an actual system of studying scripture, and I mention it often in my preaching, and I allude to it almost every Sunday, but we're going to focus on it specifically this morning. So I hope you have your notes out. Look at the big idea in your notes. It is that Jesus and the authors of scripture recognize that biblical theology is valuable for accurately understanding God, his word, and his plan for redemptive history. You see, this methodology and this system is not rooted in a denomination. It's not rooted in a specific seminary or a, a great preacher of the past or great author. It's actually rooted in what, as I've studied it through the years, seems to be the way Jesus and the authors of Scripture interpreted Scripture. So we're going to answer three questions with the goal of making sure we all have tools as we go out so that we, as followers of Christ, can study this great book and to arrive at accurate conclusions. Three questions. Why study biblical theology? What is biblical theology? And then how do we use biblical theology? Number one, why study biblical theology? 
And maybe you're, you're saying, well, Jeff, we should start with what biblical theology is, and then we can get to the why. But, but I think if I can convince you the why of biblical theology and the motivation of biblical theology, you'll have ownership to be able to really pay attention and really get what it is and how we use it. So the answer to the question why is actually embedded in the two words that define and describe the system. Biblical theology. First of all, biblical. Let's just look at biblical Biblical means that it is rooted in this book. It's not any of the other sources of authority in our lives. It is this book and this book alone. So when we talk about biblical theology, it is anchored in the 66 books that are contained in this ancient text. Which I just want to simplify things by telling you what the purpose of this book is. In fact, if you want to impress people as you go to tailgate this afternoon or get ready for the Chiefs game, Just tell them, hey, I I know what the purpose of this book is. It's this, to reveal God's character. That's the purpose of this book. Now, as we look at the creation around us, Romans 1 tells us that the creation teaches us generally who God is, but this book specifically reveals his character. It specifically reveals what his plan for redemptive history is. That is the purpose of this book. It's him before it's us. But then graciously, he blesses us with practical personal benefit, doesn't he? In fact, let me try to convince you by giving you three passages of Scripture. And they'll be up on the screen, and usually we are walking through a book of the Bible verse by verse. And so, but we're putting them up on the screen, not so that it gives you an excuse not to open the Bible for yourself, but because we only have so much time, and we're going to be going all over the place. So, so the first passage is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, all Scripture, every word in these 66 books in their original form, all Scripture is God-breathed. The author of Scripture, yes, was Paul and Peter, but it was ultimately the Holy Spirit. I had somebody come up to me a couple weeks ago and said, I think you need to remind our church that. I believe that. The author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, and he used men like Paul. He used men like Peter and and used their personalities and their education and their experience to to add color to the text. But the, the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, and that's what Paul is affirming in 2 Timothy 3. No other book can make that claim. The, the, the God of the universe wrote this book, and it's profitable. It's valuable. For what? For doctrine. You want to know what, as a human being, we're supposed to believe about life? It's in this book. And then it's also profitable to evaluate our beliefs and how it's affecting our lives, to show us reproof, where we're off course. But then it doesn't leave us in the area of reproof. It actually gets us back on course. It says it corrects us. And then it gives us the tremendous value of ongoing equipping and teaching and training so that you and I have what we need to do what God expects of us. What an amazing book. Okay, but maybe you're not convinced. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. The Apostle Peter says, everything that we need for life and godliness. Let me ask you a question. Is there any life context that you have, are, or will experience that is outside of that phrase? Everything that you need for life and godliness. 
Is there anything that could happen in the world around us that is somehow outside of that phrase, everything you need for life and godliness? And the answer is no. And so Peter says, everything that we need for life and godliness is contained in the knowledge of him. And as I said at the onset, God reveals that the knowledge of him is specifically revealed in this book. What an amazing book! No amens yet, so let me give you a third passage. <laughs> Romans 12, 1 through 2. And I, I know I'm combining, my, I memorized this in the King James and then the New King James and New American Standard and ESV, but let me, let me go off of memory. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is your holy and acceptable act of worship. And so, so how do we do this on a daily basis? Well, we are not conformed to this world. It's so easy to be conformed to this world, isn't it? I mean, everywhere we look, there are influences of the world that invite us to look like the world, to think like the world, to speak like the world. And it is a, it is a strong current. But Paul says, do not get caught up in the current. Be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? This book. Oh, it's better. But then what it says, you will actually be able to discern God's good and perfect will. Oh, what an amazing book. Amen. Glory. We're on our way to being Southern Baptists. A method and a system that begins by anchoring in this book is worthy of our consideration. But then theology. You see, it's very easy for us to read this book and to, to, to look at the facts, look at the characters, look at the topics, look at the paragraphs, even memorize scripture. But, but, but theology moves us beyond that. Theology is connecting the dots of the facts of scripture to understand God, his character, human condition, and his plan for redemptive history. Can, can I give you an example of that that I, I found this morning? Luke chapter 1. Gabriel is telling Mary that she's pregnant. What a, what a fascinating historical context to just sit in for a moment. And Gabriel tells Mary that the child who is growing inside of her will, be, will have a name of holy. His name will be holy, Gabriel says. Well, then Mary, after she processes all of this, gives a prayer. And in her prayer, she's speaking to God the Father and says, your name is holy. Do you see what happens when we connect those dots? Several years ago, I was talking to a representative from the Jehovah's Witness who said that the Bible never says Jesus is God. And I'm like, yes, it does. And he's like, well, show me. So I looked in Scripture, and I'm like, well, there, okay. There's not one verse that says Jesus is God full stop. But Genesis to Revelation says that, which is more important than one verse, isn't it? This is an example of where the Bible says Jesus is God because if the child in Mary, who we all know is Jesus, will have the name holy, and then Mary says God's name is holy, they both have the same name. That is connecting the dots to show us theology. Jesus is God. Isn't that cool? 
So biblical theology is a methodology and as a system anchors in the Bible, connects the facts of Scripture so that we understand God, his character, human condition, and his plan for redemptive history. But there's a third value for the why of biblical theology, and that's understanding. Understanding. Let me give you some passages to convince you that God cares very deeply that we understand his word. John chapter 3 and verse 10. Story of Nicodemus and Jesus interacting. And Jesus says in John 3 and verse 10, are you not the teacher in Israel? Jesus, in that phrase, is recognizing that Nicodemus is known throughout Israel for his ability to know the facts of Scripture and the perceived ability to connect the dots and to teach it. But Jesus is showing how the dots connect to point to him, but Nicodemus doesn't understand. And Jesus reproves him and says, are you not the teacher in Israel and you don't understand it? It's important to God that we understand scripture. But you say, well, that's the teacher of Israel. So you can write down Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Remember who the disciples are. They're fishermen. There's a zealot. There's a tax collector. These are people just like you and me. And they're talking about bread, and the disciples are thinking about physical bread. Jesus is talking about spiritual bread. And Jesus says to them, do you not understand? And what he says there is that sometimes a lack of understanding can actually demonstrate a hardness of heart. So he's rebuking his disciples saying, listen, if you don't understand, if you're not seeking to understand God's word, you might be demonstrating that you have hardness of heart. Let me give you a third example. Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 through 52. After Jesus gives the parable of the sower in the seed, he's sitting with his disciples and he says, do you understand? What the next phrases demonstrate is that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a citizen of the kingdom, God expects you to be a scribe. Scribes in the New Testament were individuals who were supposed to connect the dots of scripture for understanding. That's why when Herod pulled the scribes in, in Matthew chapter 2, he wanted them to connect the dots where Christ was to be born. The expectation of God is that if you are a follower of Christ, you will study God's word, connect the dots of theology to arrive at understanding. And biblical theology as a methodology and a system helps us get there. It's worthy of at least our consideration. Do you agree? Well, if I've convinced you, let's move on to the what. What is biblical theology? Very simply stated, the start of our understanding is this. Biblical theology is not just a theology rooted in the Bible. Biblical theology is the attempt to understand the Bible in its own terms. In fact, I would invite you, if you're willing, to put this in your notes because studies show that the effort of actually writing something down moves it from concept to ownership. And I want us to own this because biblical theology has a general application and then a specific application. This is the general application. 
The methodology and system of biblical theology requires that when we study this text, we study the Bible in its own terms. Why is that important? Because many of us come to the Bible and we ask the question, what does it mean to me? We ask first, where am I in the text? But biblical theology moves us beyond that to say, what does the Bible mean in its own terms? Let me illustrate this by imagining that there was a young husband, and he's looking through a box in the attic of his family, and he comes across a a stack of letters. And he looks at the first letter, and a few lines in, he realizes, oh, the author cares deeply for the recipient. He starts to think this is, this is a love letter, and he's trying to understand what was written in the love letter. And there's places that are alluded to, not in detail, but he can tell there's locations and experiences that, that are mentioned. And then it, it, it's signed at the bottom, all my love forever bubbles. Now this young husband might look at that letter and say, well, I've written some love letters in my day. I understand what love letters mean. I'm going to draw conclusions about this letter. And the details that are not specific will be filled in by this young husband. And the places will be filled in by this young husband. And he looks at that and he says, well, bubbles, that just must mean this is the only human being in the history of the world whose parents named him Bubbles. Now, now hopefully at this point, you're beginning to say, no, 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 young husband, You've got to put yourself in their context, not assign your own to that. You've got to understand that love letters have different rules for how we read and understand them. You've got to understand that even though it says bubbles at the end of the letter, that this is likely a name that the author was known by, the recipient, that communicated something about their relationship. And see, if you're asking any of those questions, if you're suggesting any of these observations to this this hyperbolic young man, then you are doing biblical theology. And how much more should we be doing that to this book that was written thousands of years ago? And yet so often we do what so many do and say, well, that's not what it means to me. In fact, several years ago I had a couple who uh, disagreed with something that I preached, which I'm fine with that. And so they came in, and we we talked about it that next week, and I walked them through, you know, more passages, developing it from Genesis to Revelation. And they said, well, I see how you got there, but that's just not how I read it. And I said, well, so where's the authority when it comes to interpreting? Is it in us, or is it in Scripture itself? You see, biblical theology in a general sense moves us to remember that no matter what book, no matter what chapter, no matter what paragraph, no matter what verse we are reading, we we study the Bible in its own terms. But then I said there's a specific benefit for biblical theology, and that is the, the role that it plays in the process of interpretation. Here's another quote. To do biblical theology is to think about the whole story of the Bible. 
So, so the general value of biblical theology is it reminds us we read the Bible and understand it in its own terms, but then it actually plays a role in the process of interpreting Scripture. And that, that role that it plays is it reminds us that we must understand the text we're studying in light of the whole. I'm going to have the team show a video, and then I'll explain it here in just a moment. How did my father die? A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. This is Oscar-worthy performance and that this is probably the, the best cinema scene in the history of cinema. Don't, go, don't get distracted from that. Amen. You know, the first time that I saw this scene, I joined all of the other audience in asking questions. Who was Luke's father? Who were the Jedis? How did Vader betray and murder Luke's father? Why was Ben kind of looking a little weird as he was asking these questions and answering the question? And we came up with theories. We came up with ideas. In fact, some of them seemed extremely plausible. But as the rest of the movies have been made, they give the authority to the answers to those questions. You see, we don't make up who the Jedis are. The story defines that. We don't make up, and this is a spoiler alert, whether or not there's a father of Luke and a different individual named Vader. The story authoritatively informs us when we study the scene. This is the role that biblical theology plays in the process of interpretation. And look at the value. Here's another quote. Evaluating passages of Scripture in light of the whole story protects the reader from their own definitions or forcing their own traditions on the text. So easy for us to do that. So easy for us, especially if we've come from denominations or sat under the preaching of of pastors who have a high view of Scripture. It's so easy for us, even though we don't even realize it, to assign our definitions to what it means when it says God is love. To assign our definitions to topics that are developed from Genesis to Revelation. And the tool of biblical theology equips us to be able to avoid that as much as possible. So this is what biblical theology is. Now we arrive at number three. How do we use biblical theology? This is where we get extremely, extremely practical. I'm going to give you three overviews. And then I'm going to drill down to give you some tools for how to accomplish this. How do we use biblical theology? Well, number one, we work to enter their context. So no matter what passage you are reading, you ask the question, what did it mean to them then? What is the context of them then? You enter into their context before you get to the us now. Biblical theology moves us to that mindset. Number two. We remember that the passage we're studying is a story. 
Which brings us to number three. We trace how that passage connects us to the point of the story. And that's what we do with any great story, isn't it? I mean, think of the trilogy, the, the Lord of the Rings. Every chapter, every paragraph, every character, every scene points us to what? To the ring. So when you think of biblical theology, the, the, the point of this entire story is Christ. He is the ring. And so that helps us when we're studying Leviticus 13 and we're reading about gray skin and white hairs or black hairs. And we're like, are you kidding me? It's pointing us to the point of the story, Jesus Christ, his holiness, our sinfulness, our dependence upon him. So biblical theology as a methodology, as a system, moves us to work to enter into their context, remember that it's a story, and it points us every passage to trace how that passage connects us to Christ, the point of the story. So here's what we're going to do, extremely practical. We're going to divide this process into micro lenses and then get to macro lenses. So, so micro lenses focus on the passage at hand, the details of the passage. The, the, the macro lenses, lenses expand beyond that. So there's two micro lenses that I commend to you. The first one is historical context. The historical context. When you're, when you're studying any passage of Scripture, you're looking for clues that tell you the historical context. I know some of the ladies are going through the book of Esther in Wednesday mornings. And so when you're studying Esther, you're looking for the, the names of individuals. You're, you're looking for uh, details of kings and empires. Often the Scripture itself will tell you clues to help you. In fact, sometimes you have to work a little bit harder. We studied the Psalms this last summer, and often the, the titles of the Psalms will give you details and clues about the historical context, but, but you know what else is helpful? That is the storyline of Scripture. And one of the best tools to, to arrive at an understanding of the storyline of Scripture, would you write this down? It's the major covenants of the Bible. So the first major covenant of the Bible was the covenant between God and Adam. The next covenant was the covenant between God and Noah, and then God and Abraham, and then God and Israel through Moses, and then God and King David. And then in Jeremiah 31 through 33, we see the, the seed planting of the new covenant that Jesus will say in the upper room with his disciples, the blood of the new covenant is being poured out through my crucifixion. And the value of this timeline is that it allows you to be able to look for the historical clues and understand how God is dealing with his people in that passage. Let me give you an example, Hosea. What an amazing prophecy where God tells the prophet, I want you to marry a woman, and God tells him she's going to commit adultery over and over against you, but I still want you to do it. It might cause us as modern readers to say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like God the God that I know. But when we look at the timeline of Scripture and we understand this is during the, the era of the Mosaic Covenant where Israel was expected to live holy as a bride to her groom, God, and they had failed over and over. And God had been faithful to give grace and to forgive over and over. But there's a point when God says, enough, I'm going to create a new covenant that will actually be fulfilled by my son and not by you, Israel. And now you understand why God 
God is saying what he's saying, we better understand God, human nature, and his plan for redemptive history by understanding the historical context. The second micro lens is language, the words of Scripture. And you don't need a Hebrew Bible or a Greek Bible, although those are extremely valuable. You can just read English, good English translations, and, and here's some, some clues you can look for. Look for repeated words. If you find in a chapter or in a paragraph that the author repeats words over and over again, that, that probably means that the author considers this pretty important. Look for commands in Scripture. If God is giving a command to his people, then we should probably pay attention to that. Now, don't forget the historical context. There's going to be commands to the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant that as we look at the New Testament and the New Covenant, we realize, wait, we, we don't have to live by those because Christ has fulfilled that. There's also another value in the language. It tells us the literary device that God is using, the genre. So just refer back to my illustration with the young husband. You read a love letter differently than you read a legal contract. Although I think there's probably some wives that say, yeah, but my love letters, if he ever writes one, sounds more like a legal contract. <laughs> Language is a micro lens that is so important for us. Now, at this point, you might be overwhelmed and think, okay, this is reserved for pastors, for theologians, for professors. But let me, let me remind you that this is expected from all of us, and the value is staggering. Let me give you three examples. First of all, the gospel of Matthew and Matthew's fulfillment formulas. In the first five chapters of the gospel of Matthew, read them. If you're looking for something to study in God's word, look at the first five chapters in Matthew and, and notice every time Matthew says this was to fulfill and then he quotes an Old Testament passage or does he at the end of Matthew 2? You'll have to look for it. What was Matthew doing? He was actually using the historical context of the passage that he quotes. Consider Matthew chapter 1 when he quotes Isaiah 7.14. He's going back to the context of Ahaz and Judah and the, the, the enemy coming down from the north. So he's looking at the historical context. And even in then, he will call his name Emmanuel. And then he defines the words. He defines the language, which means God with us. And you start to see that Matthew is not just sharing details of Jesus' life. He's actually teaching us theology lessons to understand God, human condition, and his plan for redemptive history through historical context and through language. What an amazing gift. Then you can also write down Mark chapter 12. Verses 26 and 27, I'll read these to you. The context is the Sadducees come to Jesus, and Mark helps us to know that the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. But they're asking a question about resurrection. And Jesus says in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, referring specifically to the book of Exodus, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham. Now just stop right there. There's a historical context and language that makes this blow off the page. The historical context is Moses. Where was Abraham at the time of Moses? Dead. Then look at the language. 
God says, I am present active. Tense of a verb. I am the God of what you might think is a dead man, but he's actually alive. So then, verse 27 says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Because of a tense of a verb and historical context. You see the gift. You see the the blessing that is extended to us if we will dive into the text and simply just look for historical context and the the language. What a gift. But that's the micro lenses. Let's look at the macro lenses. The macro lenses begin with biblical theology. I told you it played a specific role. It plays a specific role in the process of interpreting Scripture. Biblical theology reminds us there's a whole story that must be used when we come to our conclusions. I mean, just consider that amazing scene that I showed you. Ben said, Vader betrayed and murdered your father. That's what he said. But we know there's more to it. The conclusions that we draw from a passage must hold up in light of the whole story. So we've got history, we've got language, we've got biblical theology, and then number four, the fourth tool is full-bloom aspect. It's a phrase I've come up with that really flows out of this quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. It is the concept that the story in the Old Testament is in seedling form. But then when we get to the New Testament, it's in full bloom. Now, I don't know all of the science of this, but I can tell you that what I'm saying is right, that everything that we see in the full bloom tree is contained in that little seed. They're not different. But in the seed, we don't have an understanding of what the tree is ultimately going to look like. When we see the tree, then we understand it all. And so in the Old Testament, the the story that God is writing, that is Genesis to Revelation, that points us to Christ, is in seedling form. And so so we see these topics that by the time we get to the New Testament are full bloom, and we see the fruit so vibrant. We see them in seedling form in the Old Testament. Let Let me give you a few. One is the atonement. Read through the book of Leviticus and highlight every time we see the word atonement. And in the Old Testament, atonement is a seedling concept. That blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. But when we get to the New Testament, especially Revelation, we understand, oh, the tree is, Christ is that atonement. It's not all the lambs and the bulls and the goats of the Old Testament. It's actually Christ. And because of his final and ultimate sacrifice, human beings can be saved. Isn't that awesome? So when we read the atonement in the Old Testament, we do so from the perspective of the full-bloom tree of Christ in the New Testament. Here's another one, the Trinity. And I hear critics of Scripture saying, well, that word is not in Scripture. Well, okay, let's just think logically. Don't we use words to explain broader concepts so that it's easy for us to understand? Trinity is in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit hovered over the waters. Colossians 1 tells us Christ was intimately involved in the creation process. The Trinity is right there. But as you study the Old Testament, you realize the Jews just didn't get it because it was seedling form. But by the time we get to the New Testament, like Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, there's a voice from the Father, the Spirit descends like a dove, and Jesus is standing there in the Jordan River, Trinity. 
Another example is the people of God, which is an important topic as we think about what's going on in the Middle East right now, isn't it? We study the Old Testament, and who does it look like is the exclusive people of God? An ethnic people group called the Jews. But as we look before Genesis 12, as we look after Christ, we realize, wait, God's plan for his people far exceeded and surpassed limitations of ethnicity. You see, the seedling form of the Old Testament is in full bloom in the New Testament, and we must take this into account as we're studying Esther, as we're studying Hosea, as we're studying Matthew, as we're studying Revelation, so that when we see the full bloom tree, we read that back to the seedling accounts in Scripture. How do we do this? Well, we look for patterns, we look for themes. Let me give you some themes that pull the story from beginning to end. The theme of dwelling, God dwelling with his people. I've already mentioned the theme of atonement, the theme of redemption, the theme of rest, the theme of kingdom, and it goes on and on and on. The theme of exodus, the theme of exile, the theme of bondage, the theme of salvation through judgment. And these themes, like any great story, are being pulled along in all of the details that we're reading so that as we apply micro lenses and macro lenses, we can get to a place where we have accurate understanding of God's word. So three instructions for us as we conclude. You want to use biblical theology in your process of studying God's word? Number one, do it. And I know that sounds like an oversimplification. My, my dad's here. He, he played Major League Baseball, and I, I wanted to follow after his footsteps so badly. And my favorite part of baseball was hitting. I despised defense, and that's why I'm a pastor now. But <laughs> I remember I used to get into slumps, which was more regular than what I had hoped. And I would talk to my dad and say, Dad, I'm not getting any hits. And he would say, just see the ball, hit the ball. Come on, Dad. Like you've got to, you know, there's elbows that you've got to be thinking about. There's balance. You've got to get your dad. Nope, just see the ball, hit the ball. So what I'm telling you is what my dad told me as a hitter. Just do it. You don't have to have it all figured out. You're going to come away with questions after you read the text. Keep doing it. You'll become a better spiritual hitter. So pick a passage of Scripture. Get a bite-sized amount so that you can do it on a daily basis. Just do it. But then number two, when you read the Bible, ask them then questions first. Ask them then questions first. Look for the history. Look for the language. And then number three, consider the entire story. You may say, Pastor, this Christianity thing is new. The Bible's new. I didn't even realize there were 66 books. Welcome to the family but let's continue to study it and grow. Here's some resources that they'll put up on the screen. Many of these are in our library, so you have to acknowledge you're the third service, so good, <clears throat> good luck. But the li- <coughs> library is contained in our office. You can go in there. There's an iPad. You can search for these. It'll tell you where it's located. After you put down your name and you sign in blood, you can take this with you for free. <clears throat> The first one is phenomenal. Jim Hamilton's book, What is Biblical Theology, goes through the entire storyline of Scripture, showing you where these themes come together, equipping you. If that's the only book you'll read, you'll have an incredible foundation. 
The last two are very short. They're going to look specifically at themes and pull them through. And through that exercise, you'll be able to exercise these muscles of biblical theology. And so I mentioned last week that I think this methodology and system actually could contribute to your evaluation of what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And I would present it like this. Some of you might be able to pull some passages from the Old Testament or even a section like Romans 9 through 11 and say, I think I know what God is doing right now. I think I know who Israel is right now. I think I know what this means for the future. My question to you and my counsel to you is, are you examining those conclusions in light of the whole story? Now, this process does not guarantee that we will find the end-all, be-all answers on every question from Scripture. There still will be denominations. You still will have disagreements with me. I'll still have disagreements with you. But there's two values that I would encourage you to take away with you as you think about biblical theology. Number one, it will give you a Jenga tower for your belief system. You know the game Jenga, it's all of these individual blocks that are stacked together that when you pull the first one out, I've never seen this happen, but it shouldn't fall. And so many of our belief systems are built on just a couple of verses or you know, concepts that a pastor or an author has given us. And if we're wrong about those, if, if they're wrong about them, then we don't have a tower. But if we've got a tower that's built on Genesis to Revelation and the development of the story and the history and the language and the full bloom aspect, we might get a passage or two wrong, but the tower's gonna stand. The second value for this is more important. And that is, as you look at how Jesus used the Old Testament, how the authors of the New Testament use the Old Testament, how the Old Testament authors use the Old Testament, I believe with all my heart this methodology and this system is what they were using, and that seems worthy of our consideration. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I, I, I know that this is a lot. But I hope you walk away with, with one thing, if nothing else, and that is this Bible is a story that centers on Christ. If, if that's all you got from this, then praise God for that. My question to you is, have you responded to that central character and his central work by entering into a relationship with God because of the completed work of Christ? If you haven't, friend, today is your day of salvation. Admit your sin. Admit your desperate need for his completed work and put your faith and trust in him and turn from your sin to receive forgiveness of sins. Friend, if you have received that forgiveness, would you at least consider this methodology and system of biblical theology? It is rooted in the Bible. It connects the dots and it leads to understanding. Let's commit by asking the them-then questions, looking at our conclusions in light of the whole, and reading the end back into the beginning so that we can understand his story. Father, thank you for this story. What an, an amazing gift you have given to us. We know there are difficult passages to understand. There are difficult concepts that godly people divide over and disagree with, but may we at least see the value of considering this methodology and system. May we just do it and continue to do it, and may we grow in our ability to 
love your word, study your word, understand it and apply it all for the glory of Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen.